Read along with me, if you would, please. <clears throat> the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atarim. Then, this is Numbers 21, right? You're all there. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, <clears throat> If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then we'll utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Chorma. Would you say Chorma? Which you're aware of is a lovely Indian dish. Oh no, that's Korma. Never mind. Alright. Chorma, by the way, means literally dedicated, isolated, or complete destruction. Then they journeyed from Archor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is the dramatized version. There's no food. There's no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten... When he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was as if the serpent had bitten anyone. Well, then he looked at the bronze serpent and he lived. Now, the children of Israel moved on and camped an abot. And they journeyed from abot and camped at Yeabarim. In the wilderness of the east of Moab toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped to the valley of Zered. And from there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the Book of Wars, and I know you're real familiar if you've got the Book of Wars at your house, of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa, the brooks of Arnon, the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar that lies on the border of Moab. Oh, they went to beer. And by the way, beer means well. It isn't like they went drinking. They went to beer, which is at the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, oh well, all you, all of you sing to it. Then the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matana. And from Matana to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Mamot, and from Mamot into the valley that is the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let us pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or your vineyards. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through the ter your territory. But Sihon would not allow all Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Yahaz and fought against Israel. 
Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, took possession of his land, and from Arnon to the Yabok, as far as the people of Ammon, from the border of the people of Ammon, was, because it was, was, was fortified. So Israel took all those cities, and Israel dwelt in the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages, for Heshbon was a city of Sihon, king of the Amorites. He who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all its land from the, his hand as far as Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, and if you speak in Proverbs, I guess you say this as well, right? Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, the flame of the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar, which obviously is where the pirates live. Ar of Moab. That was supposed to be funnier than I guess it was. The lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, for you have perished, though people of Hamash. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. Then we laid waste as far as Nopha, which reaches to Medeva. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent out to spy Yether, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. They turned then and went by way of Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all of his people, at the battle of Edrei. Then the Lord said to Moses, Don't fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people in his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwell in Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left with them. And they took possession of his land. Now, you might go, what am I in for? Really awesome time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of this time. And we agree that even though it's only 35 verses, it could be a bit overwhelming because there's so much that takes place. And these proverbs and these songs that, well, I don't think we've ever really heard before unless we've opened your scripture. And Lord, here we are hungry for context, but also hungry to find out how it, how it relates to our lives. And Lord, we recognize we are literally looking at the history of a group of people being led by you, being delivered out of the hand of the enemy, but into the land of fruitfulness that you promised. So Lord, I pray that we would get it today, no matter where we're at, whether we've never really honestly ever heard of you, or whether we have been raised our whole life breathing your name, God, please Please, today, speak to each of us individually where we need to hear you in our heart of hearts, in our minds, in our ears. God, that we would truly know you've spoken to us. That we would get it, Lord. That we would get it. Captivate us in your word. Make it burst open and come alive. Color in the black and white, Lord. Draw us in today. And may we have so much fun in your word as we learn May our hearts be rent open and perform all the open heart surgery you want on each of us. Not just individually, but corporately as a body, as a family as well. And I thank you for the privilege of this time. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Speak to me profoundly and through me profoundly. Pour your Holy Spirit upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do now. Lord, that each one of us would be personally reached, transformed, encouraged, bolstered, strengthened, fortified, refreshed, equipped for every good work. So have at it now, Lord. May we walk out of here knowing you are everything that we need and you are so much fun. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful flock. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this time. We deem every second, we pray. And if there be anyone who has yet to know you, let today be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, if you had never read the scripture before and you read this chapter, and I were to say, put a summary on this. Give me a one-sentence statement. You might say something like this. Wow, there's a whole lot of battles going on. Would you say that's a fairly simple overview of the chapter? Well, that's exactly the point. Now, please put this into context. Israel has been removed out of Egypt. God has been removing the older generation for the younger, taking out the old man and bringing in the new. And he is preparing us now for the promised land. We are in our 40th year. We know that because Aaron dies in the 40th year, and he died in the last chapter. Which means we are now upon the precipice of entering the land that God had promised, of fruitfulness, the place he intended for us. And understand, when God pulled you out of your horrible pit, God's plan for you was not just to give you, to bring you anywhere but there. God had a specific place for you, a place of fruitfulness, a place of overflow, a place of abundance. And by abundance, I mean spiritually, not that God just wants to give you a Bentley and a penthouse somewhere in Chelsea. Because if you have those and don't have his presence, you will be infinitely more miserable than I am. And I don't have either of those things, and I'm very happy I don't, to be honest. If I did, I'd sell them and we'd do something else with it. So God has been preparing us for this. In chapter 19, if you remember those who were around, it was sort of like, love God, kill your cow. The whole thing was about a red heifer. And understand, for the Israelis, that was what they knew for over 400 years. For 430 years, that was the, one of the big gods in Egypt. Apis, the god of war, the martial god, the god of power. And so to get that thing laid down and say, God's like, I want to be your power, boys. I want to be your power, ladies. I don't want you to turn to anything else for importance, for power, for strength. And we lay that all down to be pure before Him. In the previous chapter, we have in essence a diary of two deaths. We saw at the beginning of the bookends, at the beginning of the chapter, we saw Mariam. If you remember, Mariam, it means bitterness. At the end of the chapter, we have Aron, which means light giver, brings light. These are Moses' brother and sister. We do know Aaron is at least, you know, Aaron's actually three years older than Moses is. He's 123 years old when he dies. Moses is 120 at this moment. He's gone up to Mount Hor to die. Before that, Mariam dies. And as Mariam dies, what do you do with a person that, that dies? You bury them. Remember the difference how there was no great mourning, no great crying out, no one waited, there was no 30 days of set aside for Miriam. There was for Aaron, there will be for Moses, and it isn't because they're boys. But we find this beautiful connection between them, because in between are two other events. Miriam dies, and then they have to go, and they can't find water. Now please, and I didn't develop it last week, because I knew it was going to prepare us for this, I'd like you to consider, how do you look for water? In this chapter, how did they look for water? They took their staffs, their staves, and what did they do with them? They dug. Where were they? Where they buried bitterness. And can I just lay this out for you? You will never find the living water you're looking for 
digging in the ground where you buried the bitterness. You can dig through that past all you want, and we're going to look at that here in a moment. You're not going to find the refreshment or the hope or the life you're looking for trying to go back and rehash that. You've got to let it go. Let it stay where it belongs. On the second half of the chapter, there is Moses trying to get through Edom, which of course also prepares us for this. Edom, by the way, if, you remind, if I remind you, Edom is the other name for Esau, who happens to be the twin brother of Jacob. Now, who's Jacob? Jacob is the guy who gets the name changed to Israel. So when we talk about the tribes of Israel, they're the tribes of this man, Israel. Now, you could say it's a place today, but it was named after a guy named Israel. Which, by the way, is literally Sarah struggles with contention and El, like Elion, Elohim, God. So literally means struggles with God. So understand that when Moses says, come on, brother, let us through your territory. We're not going to go to the left or the right. We're not going to eat your vineyards. He's got a couple million people. That will waste the guy's vineyard. We get that. It isn't like we won't stop at your local convenience store. That would empty it out. We're just going to go straight through on the highway. By the way, he tells us the king's highway. We won't go left. We won't go right. We're just going to go straight through. Please let us through, brother. Come on, bro. And he says, no way. And understand the thing about Esau or Edom. Esau means hairy. Edom means red. Why? Because what do you think the kid looked like? He looked like Chewbacca. He was red and hairy. Because though he called him bro, what he had to discover by the time he's done is that this guy that was his bro just isn't his bro anymore. And when you start following the Lord where he leads you, those people that were your bros before just aren't. You can't lean on them like you used to. And then Aaron dies. Do you get it? Aaron was the guy that Moses always leaned on for his entire ministry. If you actually, and we've never seen it in any of the cartoons, I think it's actually rather humorous. If we do it the way the Bible says, it seems to me that Moses whispered everything to Aaron, and Aaron's the one who spoke to Pharaoh, which has to look even more funny from Pharaoh's perspective. Guy's been gone for 40 years. He comes back not looking very Egyptian anymore, and he kind of comes back, and he's like, you know, with all the big pomp, and bah, 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 and everything stops, and he's like, pss, pss, pss. my brother says, let my people go. Now, that's, you don't see that in the cartoons. And it's always been M&A, 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 Moses and Aaron. And now all of a sudden it's just M. And by the time that chapter is done, you have to lean on the Lord. Now, this is Moses' last year. Now, I don't know if he knows that at this moment. He knows he's not going in yet. He will, by the way, make it to the promised land in the New Testament. I don't know if you're aware of that. When Jesus has his board meeting up on Mount Shemun, with uh, Eliyahu and Moses, they're in the promised land. So Moses, I mean, God, I think in his kindness, let him get it anyways, but here he's like, you can't get in at this point. Please hear me. Moses may not know how long he has, but he's going to have to live the rest of his life without his brother and sister now. And he's still got to lead the people. So in one chapter, Moses has lost his sister, really blown in at that rock of strife with his bitterness then has learned that Edom really isn't his brother. And what did they do? They retreated. 
I mean, understand, it seems to me up to this point, Moses and the army has never been on the offensive at all. Have you noticed that? They've wandered around. Someone tries to pick on them. They defend themselves. God gives them victory if they have to fight. Otherwise, they avoid it if any way possible. This is the pivotal chapter. Because this is a chapter about battles. And there are four battles in order that we're going to see in this chapter. But if we're going to go where God calls us to, and you know this, there are going to be battles to be fought. That's one of the reasons some of us don't want to progress. Because we know the battles that will be in front of us, and we just, we're tired of fighting. We don't want to fight. But the good news is, God never told you the battle was yours. He told you the victory was yours. Do you hear that? The battle is his, the victory is yours. Get that through your heart. So here they are. Verses 1 through 4 is your first battle. Verses 5 through 9 will be your second. Verses 10 through 20 will be your third, for you note takers. And fourth, verses 21 through 35. So here we go. You ready? That was not a rhetorical question. Are you ready? Thank you, the six of you that have given me that very tepid response. The king of Ahrad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Athirim. And he fought against Israel, took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy your cities. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hurmah. Which, by the way, is not the first time we've seen the name Churma. That'll be part of this. And they traveled from there, from Mount Chot, by way of the Red Sea. Stop. Look at the places we're looking at. Churma, Chor, Mount Chor, the Red Sea. The way of the spies. What do they all have in common? They're all an integral part of Israel's past. And as I'm in prayer to look at this, I understand that this is to go, God, give me something to teach that we could go cool. I'm going, God, revolutionize me. Speak to my heart that I could be so bowled over that I giggle and go, God, you're so good. And here it is. The first battle is the battle over the past. Now look at how it starts. This king, Ahrad, by the way, his name means fugitive. And it says that he dwelt in the south. He heard that Israel was coming on the road. Why were they coming on the road? Because they had said, because they were not allowed into Edom. And instead of fight, they backed off and went around. Remember that? And what does he do? He fights them. And where does he take them captive? (coughs) Interestingly enough, at the place called Atharim, which means the way of the spies. Certainly one of the most definitive moments amongst all of Israel was when they sat at Kirith, that sat and waited at the sanctuary of the wanderer and sent in spies when God simply said, go take the land. And then they say, no, 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 we want to send in spies. We want to take it. And God's like, okay, you can do that. But it's not, I already promised you it. And there's a great problem there. Look, if you're going to get where God really wants you to, 
visit these places quickly with me for a moment as we look at these and see what their significance is. The first, this place, this way of the spies of Tharim, was a place of great weakness. That becomes part of our problem. I mean, it was a place where we had a weakness in our faith. It was a place where we kind of looked and went, nah, I know this is what God said, but I, I'm not going to run like he said run. I'm going to, ah, maybe I'll kind of sniff it out a little bit and see whether God really meant what he said. It was a place of weakness. Now hear me. Here's the problem with your past. You're probably aware of it. You cannot change it. You can only cover it in blood. And the enemy loves to bring you back to your past because he knows you can't change it. And unless you're willing to look at it from Jesus' perspective, you will always feel defeated when he takes you back there. But why would you ever want Satan to be your tour guide? What part of you thinks that's going to be fun? Part of you thinks, oh, we'll do that. The bus is probably going to be air-conditioned. I mean, after all, no, really? He's going to serve what, good food? What part do you think? Oh, let's go revisit. And where's he going to go? Let's take you to those places where you were weak. But you know how he's going to apply that. Because he's going to say, you'll never be strong. You'll never overcome. You've always been weak. But he loves to take you to those places, by the way, where you really weren't trusting the Lord. Why were we weak? Because we weren't trusting in our strength. And that strength is Christ. If we're going to move forward to that place that God calls us to, God's going to want to deal today. I'm not talking about this week. I'm not talking about this year. I'm talking about today with your past. Because God doesn't want it to be a ball and chain on you if he's called you to run. No wonder why it says in Hebrews that we throw off all encumbrances and all weights if we're going to run that race to win. In front of such great a cloud of witnesses, and those great a cloud of witnesses was chapter 11 of Hebrews. That's the, the hall of faith. That's people like Moses and all the great things in Abraham. And I love it to think these are the guys in the stands. And here we are, like, we're going to run, and someone's like, oh, I think you're going to look stupid if you run because you're a Christian. And we're like, oh, I'm so persecuted. And could you imagine the people in the stands? Moses is going to look up and say, really? You're going to stop now? You know, you're like, oh, but I think I stubbed my toe. I'm afraid to run. Can you see Paul coming and go, really? What did they throw at you and stone you with? Nothing. Evil looks. Oh, looks. But if looks could kill, and Paul would say, stones can kill. And those are the guys watching us, cheering us on, saying, you can do it. And the enemy goes, oh, no, 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 no. Let's review your track record. You know what's interesting? You know the person who doesn't have that track record is the Lord. Remember when it says that when he forgives, he chooses to remember no more? Do you ever want to try to remind God, like that's a smart thing to do? God, I know I said I'd never do this again. And then you start reviewing when you, you know, but I did it this. this, and God's like, I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And so here we are in a place, by the way, where people are taken captive and all of a sudden, listen, it's the past I'm learning from this is the place where we could be taken captive. It's the place where we're in the place of our weakness and the enemy starts to speak and the next thing you know, I'm handing myself over like this to be shackled to something and I feel horrible again and insecure and, and finite and weak and not enough because my focus isn't on the one who is strong, almighty, infinite, and totally sufficient. Why would the enemy get you to view God? At least an honest light. This is the place where I get taken captive, or could be if I wasn't careful. So the people make a vow to the Lord. Interesting for what it's worth, the word nidr, by the way, is used 20 times in the book of Numbers, which is almost 50% more than all of the rest of the Torah combined. 
If you deliver, and listen to their, their, their plan. If you deliver, I'll destroy. Have you ever said something like that? You know the difference is Israel actually did it. God, if you deliver me from internet porn, I'll destroy every opportunity to do so. If you deliver me from alcohol addiction, I'll destroy all the bottles in my house. I'll destroy any opportunity I have to go get drunk again. If you deliver me from this weakness from going from relationship to relationship from relationship and always being so needy, then I'll destroy that and make sure that I don't hang out with the people who put me in that position. Wouldn't it be great if we did that? But we need friends for that. The second place we're taken to is a place called Churma. What's interesting about Churma was the place, by the way, that after we chose to send spies in and we didn't want to go, and we said we won't go, and God says, well, then fine, I won't go in then. You know, you won't go in. And they said, no, we'll fight. And God says, no, don't go fight now. I'm not going to go with you. They're like, yeah, we're only joking. We're really going to go in after all. And God's like, no, 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 stop playing that game with me. I know better. And they go in and fight on their own strength, and they get chased back all the way to a place called Churma. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 14.45, it says, The Amalekites and the Canaanites, who dwelt in the mountains, came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hurma. Deuteronomy 144, by the way, tells us that they chased you like bees do. Any of you ever been chased by bees? Are any of you in here allergic to bees? Okay, that's good to know. So if we ever have a picnic, I won't, you know, I won't be on the lookout for you. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it applies to this in regards to that. I've heard this story, and who knows if it's true or not, but it's a cool illustration, so go with me on it if you will, please. It'll probably want to be a cute Christian short one of these days. But there's a boy and his son, and they're driving in a car. The windows are down because it's a hot day. boy is, a, is allergic to bees. He's very fearful. And as they're flying in, sooner or later a bee comes flying into the, into the car. It's a bumblebee. Is Bjorn here? I should just check. Okay, just checking because... You know, no bees are totally harmed in the act. Well, you can decide for yourself. He's actually a beekeeper, among other things. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah, anyways, if, he, if there's something unusual, Bjorn's probably either done it or does it. But, um, and as the bee flies into the, into the car, the boy starts to panic. He hears the buzzing. He sees this thing. And as far as he's concerned, it's death. He's like, this is complete, this is suffering, this is misery, this is surrender, this is death. And the father goes and grabs the bee and then lets the bee go. The bee is still buzzing now. The boy can still see the bee, can still hear the noise, and he gets to panic again. And he's like, Dad, 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 I thought you cared. And the father just holds up his hand, and in his hand is the stinger. Now, once the stinger is gone, the bee can still buzz, the bee can still fly. It won't live long, but it's living for the moment and it's making its noise. But he's completely harmless now to the boy. And I think of that and I think of the nail that was printed in Jesus' hands. And if we were to say, Dad, the enemy's coming at me and he's screaming and he's yelling and the father could say, but I took his sting. Isn't that what it says in 1 Corinthians? Oh, sin, where's your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? But so this place, Hormah, by the way, was a place where they were chased like bees, too. So where maybe in the first case you get visited by a place of great weakness in your faith, but the second place is a place you visit, it's a place of defeat. 
It wasn't just a place where you were struggling, a place where you weren't figuring it out and you were kind of battling that intellectually, a place where you were weak in your faith so you weren't stepping like you should. This was a place where you fell. This was a place where you went down hard. It's amazing how we could remember those more than God's victories in our life. It's like we're infinitely intimate, more intimate for those places where we've really fallen on our face. Because you know what? When you do something and you really get hurt, you get a scar for it. When something really great happens, it's like what lasts on you? And understand as I look at this, I can't help but think, oh my goodness, this is the battle of my past. And he goes, oh, remember when you did this? Remember, when you, oh, you'll never be free from this. And I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speak to me, as Jesus said, that it'll bring to your remembrance the things I've said to you. And he says, new creation. For whoever is in Christ, first, second Corinthians tells us, is a new creation. Are you a new creation? Because you can't become a new creation by going into the morgue. You can get dolled up so you don't look as bad in your death. But only God has the power of life and death. And Jesus himself, who took death to the grave and came out alive again, offers you new life. Have you said yes to that? Then there's the third place. Because it says in verse 4 then, and so what happens? They make the vow. The Lord listens and he responds. They actually respond by getting great victory. And they journeyed then from there, from Mount Hor. See that in verse 4? Notice in verse 4, Mount Hor was the place of great heartbreak and goodbye. That was where we said goodbye to Aaron. And maybe that's where the enemy will try to get you to visit. You know, that place where someone you love died. The place where someone you thought that would always be around you left. You know what happens? I mean, let me tell you how that could work in the ministry. You serve people, you give your entire life to them because you love them. And then it's not your fault and it's not their fault. And all of a sudden they're like, you know what? I can't afford to live in London any longer. Of course, you had plans like that guy's probably going to be a pastor within a year if you keep, he keeps up the way he is or whatever. And it's, but it's, you know, the issue is he might still be one. He just doesn't have to be yours. And so you look at that. And so what happens is then you go, oh, well, they're all just going to leave now because the last time you love someone, this is what happens. They freak out. They do something weird. They have to leave or whatever. Or they just turn out to be a little flakier than you'd hope they would be. They turn out to be human. And there's that heartbreak. There's those goodbyes. And then you revisit it and you're like, oh, I'll never love again. I'll never invest like that again. I'll never... And that is so stupid. Because it was the Lord who heals your heart. And this is, you know, we tell people all the time that believe they're called to ministry. Be prepared to have your heart broken every day, but also be prepared to be able to tell everyone daily how the Lord heals a broken heart. But you're no good with a sealed up heart. Is that where you're at? Are you still in places like that you can't get past? All you can think about are your weaknesses and you're captive there. All you can think about are your defeats and you're captive there. All you can think about are those heartbreaks, those moments. But notice the way that, remember, I remind you, the pillar's leading them. And the pillar leads them from that place. Notice in verse 4, by way of what? You tell me. Come on now, you guys, it's funny, but where is it? 
Red Sea. Why is that so important? Because that's also something in their past. But that's a different part of their past, isn't it? Because that's the part where God went, BAM! And He took every enemy that, that owned you, that ruled you, that totally dominated you, and He took him and He went, How you like me now? And sometimes when you're feeling that defeat and that weakness and that misery and that regret and that heartbreak, God will take you back to the Red Sea because you've got to remember that without it, you're still captive. But it's there that He reminds you, that Red Sea set you free from your enemy. That was my tool. And if it was me walking by the Red Sea, I wonder if I would start looking for a, a Bare helmet floating. You know, something from 40 years ago. Just in case, maybe looking down there, see if I could see a chariot. But that's the way he took him. And why did he take him there? I believe he took him there because he wanted you to see, wanted me to see. Hey, just because that stuff was, let me remind you, that stuff was on the other side. That stuff was before I started showing my great power to you. Now, some of these events are recent, but not for us. The good news is, it's been washed in the Red Sea. It's just this, the Sea of Christ's blood. And so they get led by the way of the Red Sea. And notice what it says as we start moving to the second. And I don't know if we're going to get through all four, but I'm having fun. It says they went by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. One last thing in regards to that. That he take you to a place to remind you now of great discouragement, disappointment. That was the place where Edom said no. But let me tell you the difference. By the time we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to be reminded when somebody stands in front of us, that does not mean we have to turn around and walk away. Someone says, don't you dare choose Jesus. You know where you've come from. You know your heritage. You know your family. You know your culture. We don't do that. Do you know how many cultures teach you if you receive Jesus, you cease to be that? Like you were Turk, but then you give your life to Jesus and you cease to be Turk. Like what, you got a blood infusion? Well, yeah, Christ's blood, but you're still Turkish. I'm Asian. I give my life to Christ, I'll cease being Asian. What do you think will happen? Your hair will turn blonde and you'll grow another half a meter? I'm Northern Indian. I can't receive the Lord. What do you think is going to happen? The enemy does that because the idea of it is he starts going, well, am I going to have, who am I then if I'm not that? You're loved. You're blessed. You're his. You're adopted. That doesn't, see, doesn't keep you from being who Christ wants to make you. It begins the beautiful journey. And we walk by this way of Edom and we go, oh, they said no. But if we look at that without our eyes on the Lord, we become discouraged. And that's what we see here. So that takes us to the, first, to the second battle. The first battle, the battle over the past. How do we see victory over the past we get back to the Red Sea. And we say, Jesus, let your blood wash this over. All the heartache, all the weakness, all the failure. 
Wash it now. And maybe that's you today. And let's not play games with this. This is serious. You want to live the rest of your life back in the place? Hey, look at In every one of our histories, there's a graveyard. And it's a graveyard of regrets. I wish I had. I wish I hadn't. It's a graveyard of moments where, like, I wish if only they did or if only they didn't. But you can't change them. Those stones are solid in the ground for a reason. And you can try to dig things up, but you know what you'll find there is death. But I've learned this. That Israel had one point that the Roman army had planted a uh, graveyard in one of the places because they didn't want Israel to actually uh, build a, a township over it. It had been a traditional township, so they put a graveyard there and they put it all over ground so that you could see the dead people and you knew that whole bit and they put everything and, and it, it was just near En Gedi and Israel was like, we don't know what to do. We have to walk around this. This will always be there. But if you know anything about En Gedi, God did what he does a lot in En Gedi. He sent a flash flood and the whole thing got washed away. And all of a sudden it wasn't a graveyard anymore because it was washed away. And that's the whole point. So as we move from the battle of the past, our second is the battle over the pleasant. Well, look at it with me. That's a battle over contentedness. But you'll never get there if you can't get past the first battle. Does that make sense? These battles are successive. Freshmen, this is our sophomore. This is the idea of moving forward. As the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. Why did they become discouraged on the way? Because they were walking by Edom and they couldn't see God's plan in it. All they could see was that they weren't allowed to go and do what they wanted. I wanted to do it and they wouldn't let me. And that will discourage you if all you focus on is what you don't have, where you can't go, what you didn't get to do, that you won't even see. And this is what I learned from this. Look at it with me. The people spoke against God. By the way, that's what happens there. And against Moses. How many times in Scripture have we found that they speak directly against God? Oh, they've been arguing with Moses and Aaron for a while. They can't do Aaron anymore. What's interesting, they replaced Aaron with God. The people speak against Moses and God now. And it says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Now understand they're talking to Moses and God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And they say, there's no food. Listen to this statement. Tell me if this, my 11-year-old picked this out right away. She's like, hold on, hold on. There's no food. There's no water. And her soul loathes this worthless bread. You guys hear it, right? Of course, my daughter's like, how crazy is that? isn't bread food. What kind of person says there's no food when there's bread? I said, the kind of person who opens up the refrigerator turns to their mother and says, we have nothing to eat. <laughs> yeah, that didn't go real well. <laughs> and you, what happens is the moment you start focusing on what you think you don't have, you look right past every gift he gives you. But it gets worse. There's a progression here. There's no food, so I can't see God's provision. I'm looking right past it as if it's not there. But you know where I end up? I end up with these two horrible words at the end of verse 5. I see God's gifts. First, I don't see them at all. And then when I do see them, there's no food. But the bread thing, I see them as loathsome. 
and worthless. Can you imagine? Loathsome means it makes me want to throw up. It makes me want to barf. Could you imagine God's like, here's my love, and it's like, oh, gag me. That's what we're saying. I love you. I have this beautiful place for you. I don't like it. It's worthless. There's no value to me. No value to you. Could you imagine? So God, what does he do? He shows you, you know what's happening? This is like a serpent's bite. Let me show you. And there it goes. There's the fiery serpent's bite and there is death. And that's why I discover my, that I'm a sinner. This place where I'm dying from it. And can I say, looking past God's gifts, I hear the hissing. Seeing God's gifts as worthless, I feel the fangs. Loathing God's blessings, I feel the venom. What's interesting is the people said, please pray that the snakes get removed. And there they are on the wild plains. And you know what that means. Snakes on the plane, right here. (laughs) Thought you might want to know. Exactly. They pray, take away the snakes. But let me ask you, where in the scripture do we read God took away the snakes? Do you realize that? He says, let me show you what happens when you do get bit. But he doesn't say, okay, let's bring St. Patrick or whoever and play his flute or whatever and let's get him all the snakes out. There's none of that. Maybe the snakes were still there. The only difference is you knew what to do once you got bit. And he says, you only have one hope. When I looked at that snake, I would be reminded this was the emblem of my sin. This was the embodiment of my disdain for God. This was the very image wrapped up in front of me of my cantankerous, angry, venomous, nasty opposition to God's offer of love and care and kindness in my life. And it's there that I realize how horrible I really am and how desperately I need to be saved. This is a place where I realize I need to be saved. Do you see that? Because the very symbol of my sin is going to be hung on a pole, on a piece of wood. But what is it made out of? Bronze. And what do we know bronze typifies in Scripture? Judgment. And I look and I go, wait a minute, it's not, he could have made a gold serpent. By the way, have any of you heard the term Escapolis? It was the Greek god, some of you, I should talk to the Greeks and see if they know, of, of healing. But you know what it is? It's a serpent around a pole. If you look at the American Health Foundation, American, um, whatever it's called these days, they keep changing it. It is a serpent around a pole. Where do you think they got that from? You'd say, all things come from Greek words. i say, all things come from Bible. <laughs> and they had to look to the, and understand how goofy that is. So you're complaining, and I'm like, look, you have one hope. Moses is going to hold up a pole. It's going to have this serpent made out of bronze on the top of it, which, by the way, that can't be light, could it? 
Have you ever walked around with bronze? You've got a bronze thing, you're like, have anybody thought about that? And you're like, hey, don't worry about it. Mario, I know you've had a rough time. You've been complaining. You got bit. Just look at the pole. And you're like, I'm not going to fall for that old look at the snake on the pole trick. How stupid is that? You know, after I tell a couple of people that, I'm a little nervous to tell more people, right? And most of us now, let's be honest, we're like third generation. We haven't even experienced that kind of resistance. The only difference now is that we've heard stories. So we latch onto those like unbelievers latch on the stories. Oh, I heard about the church and this thing. And then I'm like, did you ever experience that? No, but it's enough for me. I don't want to share Jesus because someone just might, what, say, I'm not going to believe for that thing or that snake on the pole, the symbol of my sin on the wood thing. If I just looked at it in faith, that would be enough. What kind of numbskull do you think I am? Funny, it's what Jesus said. Because listen to what Jesus said. It's John chapter 3, and perhaps you're familiar with the most famous verse in Scripture. And if you feel like, I feel really dumb if I don't know it now. Do you realize the two verses that led up to it? Because understand, Jesus gives us actual context for that. Listen, John 3.14 says this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Because, or we might say, for God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten Son that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Believing on him is looking at the symbol of your sin hung on, but it's not just a symbol of your sin, the symbol of your sin judged. That's the bronze part. Do you get that? Jesus is the symbol of my sin judged. Hanging on a piece of wood. I get it. And you could say, well, this is what you need to, all you really need to do is look to Christ. And people go, oh, I'm not going to fall for that. Oh, look at that. That's old. Yes, it is old. You know why? Because the problem is old. You really think your problem's different today because it happens on the internet? It's still the same problem. You could put an E before it if you want. I have an E problem, but it's still a problem. In the end of it all, we need Jesus. And that's the way it is. Paul told us he had learned to be content in all circumstances, whether rich or poor, whether healthy or otherwise, because he says, I could do all things through Christ, who gives me the strength to do so, who strengthens me. Hey, we know he's like, I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the snake on the pole. I'm looking at it. It says in 2 Corinthians, by the way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Have you looked to the one who suffered and judged your sin? Are you still at this point discontent with so much she'll never be happy? How do I solve the problem of my contentedness, the battle over my pleasantness? Look to the cross. And that's how that happens. Well, I'm going to move forward. Is that okay with you guys? Absolutely. Thank you for that, by the way. Now listen, because the third part's a little technical, and I figured it would be just kind of fun to develop it with me. Now, look at it with me. The children of Israel moved from there. 
Oh, by the way, for what it's worth, that whole serpent on the pole gets worshipped like every other thing that people make. And it's and by the way, by Second Kings chapter eighteen, like verse four, it's like Nehemiah's had it. He's so tired of this. He's so fed up with this. He put this. He cut down the sacred pillars. He took this thing and he called it Nahushtan, which means bronze thing, grounded into powder. What's interesting is I am told you can go to Italy in Milan. I think it's like Saint Ambrose. Um, Cathedral, and there is supposed to be the, the bronze serpent, which would be a miracle if it was ground to powder. I don't know, we put it in the fire and poof, how came this thing again? I don't know. So look at these people. Now Now we got this kind of list of places, right? And you're like, whoop-de-doo, okay? So we went to Abot, that's in verse 11. From there we went to, it was a place called Irie Abarim, do you see that? Toward the sunrise, which, by the way, I think is interesting. And then there's the Valley of Zared and then Arnon. Yeah, whoop de right? I don't know, unless, I've had a, unless someone's got a shirt that says it or I get a postcard. Where in the world? We don't even know where most of these places are, so maybe that's not the point. Why did God, if the book is big enough, why did he put these places in here? So let's take a look at what they mean. The person, both, by the way, means starts to mumber, the mumble. Means, it means literally, it's interesting because the root word means two things. It means skin like flesh or mumble. And I think it's interesting that the root word for flesh and mumble come from the same thing. Don't you find that interesting? So it starts with a murmur. That's where we go, but let me tell you where we go from there. Because they camped there and then moved from there. To a place that's one of my favorite places in Scripture that it's called Iya Abarim. It literally means Abarim, by the way, literally means the cross or the crossing. To cross. It means ruined, destroyed. Literally means destroyed at the cross or ruined at the crossing. So I started a murmur. I go to this place called Ruined at the Cross. And then I start following my trajectory. Notice what he tells us. It is toward something. Now we've gone from this place to this place, from this place to this place. We camped. We went to this place to this place. We camped. But he says, this is toward somewhere. Where is it toward? The sunrise. And where the sunrise is, there is morning. You're aware of the fact that morning, by the way, is the time of hope in Scripture? Anger's for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may endure for a night. Joy comes in the morning. That's Psalm 30, verse 5. It tells us in Lamentation. By the way, you know Lamentation means a sad, sad song. Strange place to find hope. Lamentation 3.22, it tells us, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions will never fail us because they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You ever one of those kind of days where you feel like you've already used up all of God's mercies for the day and you're like, I just better go to bed, get his new mercies tomorrow. But I want you to know, you're laughing because you felt that, haven't you? Are you aware of the fact that God is abundant and rich in mercy? Do you know what rich means? That means no matter how much he spends, he's going to have some left over. Now, that doesn't mean you should go and really blow it just to say, I'll just cash in on more mercy. What I'm saying is, is that the Lord is not going to run out on you. You know Why? Because it's mercy that keeps drawing you in. Why would he run out of that? So listen, if we were raised with Christ, Colossians 3, verse 1, seek the things which are above, 
where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Sit your mind and your eyes on those things above because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's your hope, by the way. The third battle. The first battle is the battle over my past. The second battle is the battle over my pleasantness. The third battle is the battle over my praise or over the praise. I started with a murmur, bad place to be, flesh. And I moved toward the ruin of the cross. That's my trajectory. God, ruin me at the cross. Ruin who I was. Ruin all my love for horrible things. Ruin all of my destructive tendencies. Ruin them completely. And as he starts to do that, I'm on a new trajectory. A trajectory towards the rising sun. And then I go to these places. Listen to this. Valley of Zered. It literally means exuberance. And then from there to a place called Arnon, which literally means to shout for joy. How weird is that? Murmur, ruin at the cross, toward the rising sun, exuberance, shouting for joy. Do you get it? Because it's more than just being ruined at the cross. I got ruined at the cross toward the rising sun. Where there's a new life. And the new life is one of exuberance. The new life is one of just shouting for joy. Now maybe you're like, well, our culture, we don't like to shout. Our shout's like this. Huzzah. <laughs> then huzzah for Christ. Nah, some of you I know better. Some of you are Greek. Some of you are Spanish. Some, some of all y'all, the walls should start rattling just because I know you. I'm like, how are you doing? Oh, don't even stop talking to me. Like, just give me a hug. All right, okay. I don't want to see you. Like, if that's where you are naturally, like, okay. And then you're like, yeah, for Christ, something's wrong. <laughs> if you can go, go for like an hour. By the time he's like done, I like forgot how we started. I just got old for so long. And you can do that, but you can't shout for Christ. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Well, how do we do that? Well, walk through me with this, and I think we're going to get there. Listen. They got to a place called beer. Do you remember what beer means? Well. They got to the well, and you know what they said? Sing to it. Sing to the well. Interesting. Remember, you were supposed to hit the rock, and then you were supposed to talk to the rock? Now you got to the well. How did you get there? You dug in. You wonder what you found? You found living water, and it was the living water where everything changed. And you know what happened with the living water? You began to sing. You said you sing to it. No, notice, to sing to it means it has to be there to sing to. Does that make sense? It wasn't like sing and it will come. Some people try to teach that. If you could just get your praise on, it's all going to happen. Listen, how about we get it first? So we sing from the overflow? Because let me tell you what it says in Scripture on the other side of that. It says, don't be drunk with much wine, because that's the will of God is for us not to be drunk with much wine. That's dissipation. You know what that means? Your whole life falls apart. Hey, listen, I'm not proud of it, but I bartended a good portion of my life when I was younger. And I've never in all my years ever heard a guy say, you know, before I started drinking, my wife hated me, my children didn't respect me, I had no money, things were horrible. Then I started to drink, and now my wife loves me, my children respect me, my job is great. You don't hear that. You hear the opposite. 
Here's like, oh, here's the things with, uh, now everything's terrible. Give me another one. And I'm like, why would I want to give you another one? You're ruining your life, boo. He says, don't be drunk with much wine, which is dissipation. But listen, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. Do you get it? When do you find a guy singing unless there's words in front of him? When he's in love. It's the only other time. Or drunk, which we don't want to go there. You ever see a guy that's really in love? I mean, totally taken over. The whole life becomes a musical. And he doesn't even care how goofy he looks. Just got in a car accident, lost a limb. It's all right. My house burned down. It's, hold on, hello. And when God pours forth forth the well, you can't help but sing. But here's the danger is where are you going to sing to? Who are you going to sing to? Sing to your well. Wasn't it Jesus said, hey, if you're thirsty, why don't you come to me? Jesus started, by the way, with the woman at the well when he says, hey, look, if you drink that water, I understand you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give, listen, in him will then what? Become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's what I expect. No wonder why three chapters later he says, if you're thirsty, why don't you come to me and drink? But that's not a New Testament concept alone. God said in Isaiah 44, 3, I'll pour water on him who is thirsty. And I like the idea of pouring water on him. Do you know what that means? That guy's going to have so much water, he's not going to say at the end of it all, boy, could I have some more. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, hey, yo, or ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Are you dry? Is there no praise in your heart? Go to the waters. But you know how you get there? You let God bring you victory over your past. You let God bring you victory over your, you know, in your, in your pleasantness. In other words, your contentedness. And what I do there is I realize Christ is enough. Ruin me at the cross. You're enough. And then I get here and I'm like, oh God, fill me with your praise. Ruin me at the cross for that, for that murmuring. And now bring me to that place of exuberance at your well. You know, if you live at the well, how could you die of thirst? Well, if you go and visit, that's another story. But I don't want to get a summer home near the lake of God. I want to be dropped in the center of the ocean of his grace. How about you? So from murmuring to shouting for joy, overlooking. And it's interesting, this is how this portion ends. And then we get to our last part and it actually goes quick. The leaders sank. They dug, they dug, in the, ocean. They dug the nobles, the lawgivers with their staffs, their staves. And from there they went to a bunch of places. Matana. And then from Matana comes Machaliel, Machaliel, Ben Do you see that in verse 19? And then from there to a place called Pisgah, which is interesting. Matana, by the way, means God's gift or gift, a present. Natalia means, by the way, the stream of God. Bamot means elevated or exalted. And then this place, or like exalted over. And this place, Pisgah, means cleft or overshadowing or overseeing. And what is it we're overseeing? Look at verse 20. You can answer that. What are we overseeing? Wasteland. What's interesting is it isn't our wasteland. Listen, listen, listen. We're almost done. Follow me. Don't lose me yet. Listen, what we're overlooking isn't our wasteland yet. But it's about to be. But it won't be wasteland anymore. See, understand, God wouldn't show you that wasteland in the beginning because you were too busy dwelling in your past. All you would see was more defeat. God had to get you through that first. Does that make sense? 
And then God had to get you to a place where he was enough, because if he isn't enough, you'll try in your own strength to do what God alone can do. And then what will happen is you'll see it as some huge battle instead of seeing God's victory and his battle. So he has to take you through that area of the battle of your pleasantness. And as he takes us from these beautiful things, from the past, by the way, and I just love how God starts moving us in this. Please follow me in this. As we move from this, and I see that the battle from my past to my pleasantness to my praise, now God takes us to the last part, and that is the battle over progress. God wants to grow us. And some people love it. I mean, I don't know how many of you read that prayer of Jabez book or even know where the verse comes from. It's in Chronicles where it's like, Lord, enlarge my borders. I think my body has prayed that. <clears throat> it's very disappointing that way. But it's like, God, give me more stuff. Bless me more. Give me more land. But it's like, what would you do with the land if you had it? And understand, progress is something God wants us to have, but progress goes through this line. Now, let me deal with your past because otherwise you're already heading in the wrong trajectory. How do you want to progress there? I want you to be content in me so that when I give you stuff, it doesn't become your God or your stability or your peace. It becomes tools to bless other people with. That's what God wants. And then we go from that then to this point where God's like, look, I want to, I want to become your praise. I want your life to be one that demonstrates a life that is exuberant in me. And as you're exuberant in me, then let's move forward in praise. Interesting, this is where the other battles start to hit again. Understand, these are all battles. The only difference is those battles seemed internal, and now we go back to the others. Progress here. Look at quickly as we walk through this. There are two battles, Sihon and Og. Do you know those names? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're not reading the Old Testament much or trying to read quickly through names. These two guys' names are mentioned. These battles, these battles right here, these battles right here are mentioned in Deuteronomy 3, 4, 29, 31, Joshua 2, 9, 12, 13, 1 Kings 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalms 139 and 130, or 135 and 136. God is constantly reminding us of these battles. Why? Because they are landmark battles. Why are they landmark battles? Because something changes right here. You know what it is? Look at it with me. It says this, Israel sent messengers to Sion King. Does this sound familiar? The Amorites, he says, please let us go through your land. Please. We won't go to the left, we won't right, we won't eat your stuff, we're going to stay on the king's highway. Does that sound familiar? And the guy says, no. And we could turn around like we did last time. But oh no, not this time. This time, he brings an army to go and fight with us. And what's interesting, listen, as the resistance increases in my progress, and you know that, right? You start falling in love with Jesus, the resistance among your friends your family, your culture will increase. You're aware of that, right? You're aware of that? As it increases, I am forced to conclude whether I will live a retreating life or to stand up and fight for progress. Because up to this point, it's been a life of retreat. Every time it's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to be a Bible basher. I don't want to preach at you. I don't want to. I think you're going to think I'm judgmental. You're going to call me a bigot. So I won't, you might as well just go to hell and I won't share with you, but I'm going to tell you I love you. Does this sound goofy to you? Because it does to me. And we're like, oh, and you know what's funny is we won't even do it because we're afraid there'll be resistance. We won't even go to where there could be resistance. But they're like, please let us through. And the guy says, no. And then he brings his army and God forces you to fight. He's like, fight and let's go forward with this. It's my battle. Let's do this. 
So what do they do? They go to a place that's called to, st- to stamp out. That's Yahaz, by the way, because that's what they need to do. And stamp out that fear that God, by the way, is the one who's going to lead them forward. And they win, according to this, by the sword's edge. That's verse 24. And of course, we know that from Scripture to be the Word of God. Ephesians six seventeen. When we take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. That's Hebrews four twelve. And listen... They took possession of the land of Arnon to the Yabok. By the way, this place is called to shout for joy, to pouring forth from the border of the people of Ammon. That was fortified. Now listen, hear me on this, because this is where it hits. They took the cities. They dwelt in the cities. Heshbon in the places. People sing this proverb now. People start going, whoa, that's a pretty crazy thing. And then look at, I mean, people start talking about how amazing it is that God's bringing about this victory. And then look at verse 32. Then Israel sent to spy out Yetzer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. Why is that so profound? Because it is the first time in the history of this whole nation where they decided they were going to take ground without being forced to. It's the first time where they made a conscious choice to go on the offense. Did you notice that? And you know what was in between them? On one side, Sihon, and on the other side, Og. You know, we talk about having apologetic seminars so we could have a good, what's the word? Oh yeah, defense. (laughs) If I've learned one thing from the American football team, a good defense isn't enough. You've watched the World Cup. It was 45 stinking minutes of watching that poor goalie exhaust himself. Beloved, please hear me. The church is not supposed to live their whole life on retreat. The world's not supposed to the church is not supposed to spend its whole life just trying to keep the ground it once had because it's losing it, isn't it? And we're trying to try to figure out how ways to have a better defense. What we really need to do is fortify and equip the soldiers to get out there and start on the offense. Now, what's the offensive weapon? Dare I say it? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the gospel of Jesus Christ, a sinner's made a saint, and a person going to hell is brought to a ticket to heaven. But greater than that, he's brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the arms of the God who loves him or her. And nothing else can do that. And the church seems like they can bring out dusty books and quote people that they can't even speak their names right anymore from a language that isn't even spoken anymore, but they can't even tell you the gospel that's supposed to have saved them. In case you don't know what it is, Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture and then was buried. On the third day, He rose again, just like Scripture promised, and then was seen by a whole lot of witnesses, and you need to receive Him as Lord and Savior. Savior because He paid for your sin, Lord because He rose again and now has the right to reinvent you. And if you're willing to say yes to that, the Bible says you will be saved. That's your choice. So how does this thing end here? When I look at this, I realize, please hear me, <clears throat> we went from having to defend ourselves to having to go get... Remember how in the beginning of this, we just had to go on a reconnaissance mission? That was the battle, remember, in our past with the help to get back what was captive? And then we said, please let us progress. They said no, and they came and fought after us, and we were forced to fight. But now that we realize that God's going to start bringing us a victory, and He will force the fight sometimes. And you go, oh, God would never allow attack like that. Yes, He will if He's going to win it so you can get up and be where you're supposed to be. 
which is on the offense, so that you could actually share Jesus with the people you want to see not go to hell. Me too, by the way. Because I love people that I used to hate because Christ lives in me. And I don't want to, and it's not, not just I don't want to see you go to hell, I don't want to see you actually eating its appetizers now. So they went from there to the way of Bashan, verse 33. Og then came and brought battle because now you're gaining victory and just thinking, well, now that I'm progressing, no more battles. Oh no, battles are to be fought. But every one of those, look at what God says in verse 34. Don't fear them. I have delivered them into your hand. Not, don't worry, I will bring you deliverance. I will, I'll see you on the other side. I'll call you over like a mother racing infants. I will give you the deliverance. I'll deliver them into your hand. You can see God going, here they are. This guy brought the entire nation with him. He said, he took everyone. We're all going to fight. And God said, well, then there will be no one left. That's the way God does it. Is he takes total and absolute victory. So they defeated him as sons. They took everybody, 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 all the battle. Listen, the entire battle went down in victory for the Israelis. So listen, as we go to prayer. The only way to deal with your past will be the same. Let it be washed at the Red Sea. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus who shed his blood to wash you clean? If you haven't, I'll give you that choice. If you have said yes to Jesus, welcome to the new battles. And you know, even us, we could be battling the past. We'll lay it to rest today. Let God wash it. I'm no longer going to be a floozy or an ex-so-and-so. I am going to be blessed. I'm going to follow my king to victory. And he says, well, let's move forward. Let's start talking about your contentedness. Are you looking past my blessings to try to get what I'm not giving you? But all good gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Hey, if it's good, God gave it to you. If it's not good, he's not going to give it to you. And you're like, God's not giving it to me, but I want it anyways. What you want is not good. You say, well, it's good for that guy. Well, maybe God gave it to them, but God's not giving it to you for a reason. I'm not going to give my 11-year-old a chainsaw. That would be very bad. That doesn't mean a lumberjack can't use it well. And no matter how many flannel shirts that girl would put on, she wouldn't anyways. They're not her fashion. She's still not good with one. Are you going to let Christ be enough? Are you going to be at that place like, Lord, look at In my battle here, I'm just going to realize it's your presence. That's the way this works. I just really want to let you do this. So I'm going to look to the one who paid my price on the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. And by the way, at the cross, I remind you, my old me died there. And I will never be content if I'm trying to drag the old me over. As the old me died, and I can now see where my pleasantness could be found, now I move to the next area, the area of my praise. And how do I do that? I get to the living well, and I live there. And I sing there. And as I sing there and I move from the murmur to that exuberance, as I get ruined at the cross, which means that the old me dies and the new me comes, I start to sing like he called me to. And God says, now let's start moving forward. And there it's like, you know what? I want to learn how to move forward and say, I want to take others with me. I I don't want you to live a moment without Christ. I want you to walk with me and let's celebrate this beautiful God together. What's interesting is once we've done this, once we're, as we end this chapter, hear me, the, the enemy now has realized, wow, we're going to have to try a new tactic. This whole persecution thing, this resistance thing isn't working. It's backfiring. 
And that's why the next chapters will be the battle over our faithfulness. Here, we can walk out of here as Christ called us. Not, you're going to make it out alive. Maybe you'll escape this. He said, we are more than conquerors in Christ. That's what he tells us. Are you more than a conqueror today? Because you're supposed to be. You're like, but I feel defeated. I mean, if you knew my past, I'm like, well, then let Christ wash it. Disassociation. This is not your past anymore. You're a new creation. That's the dead person's past. Give it a eulogy. Let it be buried. Don't dig it up again. You're not going to find any living water there and move on. And now, let's walk in victory. Let's progress together to become more like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know we've gone a bit late, but I want to thank you just the same. I want to thank you well. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way that you've led us through this scripture. And Lord, for these battles. I pray right now specifically for any person in here who today, they're just struggling. They came in here with so much past. And it's like they can't move out of it. Bring them to the Red Sea, Lord. Bring them, bring them to the blood of Christ and let that be washed away. I pray for those right now where their life is kind of, I mean, they're like, they're supposed to be part of the Holy Hallelujah Club and instead they're sort of the saintly sour pusses. They're discontent and they're angry and bitter and rotten and, and just chafing. But you have better. Ruin that person at the cross. Let that person be fully vanquished at the cross <coughs> and move us now forward. As we look at the one who died at the cross, the symbol of our sin, we look in faith and let, Lord, that old person die, that we could find our contentedness in you, the risen King. And as that person is ruined at the cross and you move us forward from a place of murmuring now to a place of exuberant praise, May, Lord, you fill us to overflow with your Holy Spirit for the pure purposes, clearly first and foremost, to be intimate with you. And living at that well, may we find ourselves shouting for joy. And there, Lord, as you bring us to the precipice where we look over the wilderness, that you show us and say, this is going to be a fruitful field now. But I'm going to lead you in progress, and that's what's going to be the, that's what the progress will look like. What is now at this moment barren will become fruitful. But for that to happen, you're going to create landmark victories that we'll always be able to look back and say, God, look at what you did. How you've pulled me now onto the offense. So Lord, I pray right now, please Lord, in this room, you give us victory over every one of these battles. Lord, thank you for the beauty of these battles and for the beautiful fellowship of your victory. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, right now in this room, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, and you know you need to today, you know that he paid the price for you on the cross, you know, Lord, right now who that would be, who and how many, and here in this room right now, your heart might be racing because the Holy Spirit's saying, this is right, do this. And you're like, but people might think, or but my family might think, or but 
Lay that to rest, Lord, right now. Show them that there is nothing worth trading this in for. And right now, if that's you, as I pray this prayer, listen, and at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say, Jesus, be my Lord. Amen. And amen says, I agree with the whole prayer, and this is it. Jesus, I'm a Savior. I'm the Savior. That's not it. See? Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. And as I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. And just like you said, Moses lifted up the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so you had to be lifted up on the cross as the symbol of my judged sin. I realize you paid for all of my wrong, all of my shame, all of my regret, all of the things that I've done and thought and felt wrong, all those things that have shamed me and shamed others. Lord, now in from my life, Lord, you paid for them on the cross, and so I received that payment on my behalf. And just as you died and rose again, now I say yes to you as my Lord as well to lead me now into that resurrected life. The one Lord that is so different from the world that I'm in at the moment. One of peace and joy. One of exuberance. One of life. And so I say yes, declaring Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Have me now. I'm yours. And again, if you agree, I'm going to ask you to say, Jesus, be my Lord. Amen. Ready? And Jesus, be my Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done today. Now lead us from victory to victory, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.